Why don't we just stand and read one verse from the scriptures? John 14, verse 15. John 14, verse 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So if you're here last week, uh, you'll remember that I introduced all of you to an acronym uh, with the intention of helping us focus as a church and carrying out our vision for the new year. And our acronym was that all of us in Genesis House would strive for the top. We'll strive for the top. What did that mean? We strive for the knowledge of the truth of God's word. We We strive to obey God's word. And we, and we strive to operate in the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And what that will mean and look like for us. Last week, if you were here, you heard me speak about the importance of truth in the Christian life. And here today, you'll hear me speak about the importance of obeying the truth in the Christian life. And this is going to be important as we seek to bring the kingdom of God to our community. So why is our obedience to the Lord so important? Why isn't Christianity, uh, or just the, the Bible per se, per se, just a good set of principles to, to, to learn, but we can ignore them if we choose to? Or it's just a philosophy of life, but it doesn't really matter whether you implement them all, or just some of them, or whatever. Well, I want to outline four reasons this morning as to why our obedience to the truth of God's Word is important. Now, this is not meant to be exhaustive. I'm sure if you went on a Google search, and said, reasons why we should obey. You might come up with an article of eight reasons or 12 reasons. I'm going to give you four. The four that I believe are important for us and the ones that the Lord put on my heart as I prepared for this sermon. The first one is simply this. It's how we demonstrate our love for God. Why should we obey? It's actually the way in which you demonstrate your love for God. This is pervasive in the Old Testament and New Testament. Consider Deuteronomy. Let me give you the context of this uh, book. Israel has been in the desert for 40 years. They've been delivered from Egypt 40 years prior, and they've arrived at the Jordan River. The Jordan River, and they're about to enter the Promised Land, the land of Canaan. Moses knows that the first generation didn't go well. The first, the first 40 years, uh, God laid low most of the, the, the adults in the desert. They, they, they died, and they weren't allowed to enter the Promised Land. So Moses knew that justice had fallen upon God's people. He didn't want this for the next generation who were about to enter the land. So fast, 40, 40, fast forward 40 years, and the new generation is about to enter. So Moses prepares a bunch of sermons to give to this new generation. Serve as a pep talk, if you will, a a prep rally, to prepare the people to receive the land and God's best, and not to fall under judgment like their previous ancestors. And so these are the excerpts from these sermons, and listen to this, in chapter 11, verse 1. And I just gave you three, but there's multiple examples in Deuteronomy. He says, you must love the Lord your God and do what he requires. Keep his statutes, ordinances, and commandments at all times. 
So by loving, you keep the statutes, that's how you love the Lord. 11.22, be careful to obey all these commands I'm giving you. Show love to the Lord your God by walking in his ways. Pretty clear. Uh, Deuteronomy 30.16, and I love this one because there's two mountains in Israel uh, near the Jordan River. And Moses stands on one mountain and he gives all the blessings that are going to come Israel's way if they obey him. Then he goes and walks to another mountain, climbs it, and says, these are all the, the, the cursings that are going to come to you if you don't walk in God's ways. And then he says, choose life. I've laid out to you the best way to live and the worst way that's going to, to live. Choose life, please. Choose life. And so in, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 16, he says, I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments. Let's go to the New Testament. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. 14, 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father. Now it makes sense that love is the determining factor in, in determining, um, sorry, obeying is, is the way you show love for the Lord. Think about what he did for us. In love, he laid his life down for you and I for the sins that we committed against him. Get the DVD out of the movie that you have of your life and hit play, which none of you would show to this church, I know it for a fact. None of you would put your movie up here right now and hit play. But God knows that movie. He laid his life down for everything on that DVD. So that you wouldn't have to pay the penalty for those sins. Therefore, in love, we would then lay our lives down for him, for the sacrifice he made for us. You see, this is important. Jesus is not a killjoy. When he says, thou shalt not this, or thou shalt not that, he's not trying to say, it's because I want to make your life as miserable as possible on this earth right here and right now, so that you are removed from all the pleasures that will make you happy. He's actually saying, no, these commandments are for your good. They're for your good, to give you a life of, um, of like peace and joy in him. So our response of love is one that flows out of deep gratitude, not one of, of obligation, because we feel that uh, our Heavenly Father is not a loving Father, but a dictator. Number two, why should we obey the Lord? It's how we learn greater trust in God. It's how we learn to trust Him. John 8, 31 and verse 32, to the Jews who had believed in Him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The word hold, in other translations, is to continue, or to abide in, or to remain in. So what Jesus is saying this, is the more you will walk, like hold on to this truth and obey those truths, the more you'll experience the truth of what Jesus speaks of. And through that experience, that will lead to trust. That will lead to trust. And so as the Lord lays out commands, we then learn to trust Him. 
I've got a little exercise I want to do in terms of how trust is developed and how you will come to know truth if you trust the Lord and walk in His ways. So will one of my boys come up? There's a bit of a discrepancy as to who might volunteer. Great job, Jacob. Okay, I'm going to represent God, the Father, and he is going to have a piece of scripture that's in the Bible. And he is going to read this out, and he's going to do a little exercise with me. So, Jacob, what does this say? You can speak into the mic. I can trust my Father to protect me when I fall. Okay. So you can, protect, you can trust your Father to protect you when you fall. You read this from the Bible. All right? Did you trust me or you kind of worried a little bit? Trust. You trust? Well, that's good. Well, let's find out if you actually trust me or not, okay? So let's go over here. You're just going to go, you're going to fall backwards into my arms. You have to believe that what's written in the Word, I will protect you, okay? All right, fall. Good job. Right on. Okay, you can go sit down. <laughs> When we go to the swimming pool, actually forget the swimming pool, you can swim already. Let's say we now go to a, a, a cliff jumping, and there's a high cliff that he's nervous about, and he won't jump off. But I jump in the water below, and I say, Jacob, jump down here, don't worry, I'll protect you. The chances of him believing that message and being willing to jump off the cliff will be improved because of my willingness to even catch him here in a small way. If I dropped him today, and then later on I said, Dad, Jacob, jump off the cliff into the water. I got you. He's going to go, I'm not sure if you got me. I remember what happened last time when you were here in front of all the people embarrassing me. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's how you learn to trust I've been telling my boys for a couple of years now, you know, you guys can be generous. You don't have to be stingy with your possessions and your money and all that type of stuff. And so, uh, you know, quoting 2 Corinthians 9.6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So I've been talking to the boys about this, like you can be generous, don't worry about it, God will provide for you and take care of you even more than you already have been. So last summer, um, Jace was put to the test, put to the test, and he didn't even know he was in the test, but I watched it happen. We were ready to go camping to one of our spots, and uh, he wanted something from a particular store. And I told Jace, no, you can't have it. I, to me, I thought it was a waste of money and maybe extravagant for kind of where we're at in life. And so I said, no, Jace, I don't want you to have that. We go to the dollar store the next day, and uh, he, he sees cap guns. He thinks these are going to be fun for us to run around the courtyard and, you know, shoot each other and play cap guns. So he says, can I buy one? I said, sure. So he bought himself one. And as we're about to leave, he says, actually, Dad, can I buy two more for my brothers? Can I buy two more for my brothers? And I didn't really want them to because to me they're kind of a waste of money. They're from the dollar store. They're going to break in like one hour of play, if that. But I thought, no, I can't squash this because here he's trying to be generous. 
The waste of money is not even the issue. It's the fact that his heart wants to be generous to his brothers. So I said, sure, go ahead and buy those. So he buys them, brings them home, gives them to his brothers. And I, I, said, to, I said to him in the car, I said, you know what? I'm really proud of you for being generous. I said, remember what I've been teaching you, that generous people will be blessed by God. And I said, I don't know when and how, but I guarantee you something's going to happen that you're going to be a recipient of his goodness. A couple days later, Jace comes home, and he's got the very thing that I told him he couldn't have. And I said, how in the world did you get that? He goes, someone gave it to me as a, as a gift. <laughs> and I said, I forget who gave it to him even. I don't even remember. The, and he didn't even tell the person that's what he was looking for. Now, did, can I guarantee you that God like, orchestrated that moment? can't guarantee it, because I, I don't have that sort of understanding. But here's the important thing. God does work in those principles on a regular basis. That's his promise. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Again, though the fact that that happened just increases his trust in the Lord. He holds to his teaching, and then he will know the truth. And he's experienced the truth. Thirdly, why should we obey? It's how you receive God's blessings. It's how you receive God's blessings. In Psalm 119 and verse 173, it says, Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. The psalmist believes that because he's chosen to go God's way in life, that he believes that the hand of the Lord will help him in life situations. So if we take the verse we read this morning in John 8, 31, I want to continue reading. Listen to the blessing and the promise that comes after this. After he says, you will know, you will, you'll be disciples of mine, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The, the religious leaders said, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say that you will be, become free? And of course, they're probably thinking militarily, right? Like they've never bowed their hearts to Rome or anyone else that's come before them. Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, for the son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. How is one set free? They're set free through Jesus Christ. We're all a slave to sin. And so the first thing that happens when we put our trust in him and surrender our lives to him is he sets us free from sin. But not just the power, sorry, the, the, the death penalty that comes, the spiritual life of death. The spiritual death penalty, I should say. The power of sin in, the, in today's world. You and I can, can fight against the controlling power of sin, that, that flesh that rises up and wants to always do wrong, through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. So it's a blessing to us because it keeps us from sin and sets us free from sin. In Luke 12 and 22, we receive God's provisional care. That's the famous, uh, be anxious for nothing. Uh, thing You don't have to worry about your life, what you're going to wear, what you're going to put on, things like that. He takes care of our basic needs when we give him our lives. Relationship with others. 1 Peter 3.9 speaks about the kind of attitude we're to have and how we deal with other people. 
that if we go God's way and obey Him, that our relationships with others will improve because of the way we interact with other people. Relationships with Him, Proverbs 15 and 29, speaks about that He hears the prayers of those that are righteous and go His way. So again, we have intimacy with the Father because of... Um, well, we have a relationship, we have an intimacy with the Father, and that's a huge blessing to us. And one more. It ensures eternal life. It ensures eternal life. Now, every time I've had a little bit of a pushback in this church, or had uncomfortable dialogues, it's usually around this issue of ensuring eternal life. So I'm going to walk you through this and explain what I mean. How we live does affect our eternal destiny. And someone might say, but that's not the gospel. We're saved by grace alone. Let me walk through how someone comes to salvation in the Bible. In Titus 3 and 3.7, he says this. Once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives are full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when God our Savior revealed His kindness and love, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of His grace, He made us right and in His sight, and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. This is awesome. The good news is this. Every single one of us in here are striving to have a, 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 to live a good life. But like I said before, if you all played your DVD on a movie screen, all of, all of you would know that your DVD screen isn't full of righteous acts. There's a lot of sin in there that God knows about. And so none of us can quote-unquote inherit eternal life. We, when we die, we're not going to be with God in glory based on our own righteousness. So God loving us has to do something about it. He says, since your good works can't get you into heaven, there's nothing you can do to earn uh, salvation, I'm going to send my son Jesus, who is perfect, to die in your place. He's going to pay the penalty for your sin, and then if you receive him through faith, if you just believe that he died for you, that is enough to forgive you, and, and you can be made right with God. So the gospel is absolutely clear there is nothing we can do to earn God's salvation, his, his forgiveness of sin. That is a free gift to us. Titus makes that clear. And if we live in that, we have confidence that we can know we can inherit eternal life. That is the gospel. But there's another side to this. I want to read to you Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters is... Christian language for the church family. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us, Christians, draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And let us consider how we may spur one another to love and good deeds. The entire language here is of a Christian who's received what Titus promises, right? You hear the language? Brothers and sisters, you know, 
We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. We have a great high priest over us. Let us draw near to God, having our hearts sprinkled by his blood, and so on. This is Christian language. Now look at what he says in verse 26. If we deliberately go on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. There's nothing else that God can do. Jesus did it all. So you can't do anything to try to get forgiven. Jesus did it. There's no sacrifice left. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them? Key words. They've been sanctified, made set apart, uh, made holy by God. And now they're trampling God under their foot because they go on sinning even though they've received God's grace. He says, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay again. The Lord will judge his people. This is really powerful, church. We are saved by grace. We enter into relationship with him. But then we don't live in cheap grace afterwards. We keep sinning against God going, oh, I know I can keep doing that because God will forgive me. God will forgive me. And so we rebel, we rebel, we rebel constantly, habitually, deliberately, all the time, saying, God, I don't want your way. I just want your forgiveness. How do we balance all this? I love, uh, this is great. Like, I wasn't even reading this book for this purpose but this author, Michael Green, in his book read, said this. He said, Although no power of circumstance, no force of evil can separate the Christian from Christ, there is one thing that can, his own free will. If the Christian basically has a free will to receive Jesus and his forgiveness, to become a Christian, he sure or she sure has the free will to say, God, I don't want you anymore. God doesn't evaporate your free will once you become a Christian. And I love what he says. He says this, and I quote, If there was no possibility of this happening, it is strange that the letter to the Hebrews should ever have been written, for its whole aim is to warn against apostasy. Sure, a strange letter to put in a book, into the Bible. Very strange letter to put in, if this is not a possibility. It's warning people not to live in cheap grace. So, we ensure eternal life by obeying the Lord. Now, we can discuss this like later on about, you know, people always say, well, Andrew, you sing if I sin once, I'm out. Absolutely not. King David, King David murdered uh, Bathsheba's um, husband and got her pregnant. And God watched this happen for a year. A year of deliberate sinning against him and brought Nathan into it. In the book of Revelation, we saw the churches being warned. Who knows how long that had been going on where they were sinning against God. God is super, super patient. Super gracious. But let's not play Russian roulette with the Lord and test his patience either. 
The wrong question is this, how much can I sin against God and get away with it? You know why that's the wrong question? What if I came to you and said this, Stephanie, you and I are good friends. How much can I talk about you behind your back before you won't be friends anymore? How much can I steal from your house when we come over to practice worship before we're not friends anymore? She would say, why are you asking those questions? Well, I'm just trying to see how much I can get away with before the friendship is over. This is the wrong question. I know what matters to her to be in relationship, and so out of love, I strive to go her way and to do that for her because that's what it takes to maintain a relationship. And so it is with God. Remember, the Bible is not a, a list of principles. You, you read the scriptures to, in, to meet a person. You, you, you read the Bible to, to engage with a personality, to meet the living Lord. It's not just the book. Finally, why should we obey the Lord? How can we... Actually, the answer is because we can be effective witnesses for Him. That's how we can be an effective witness for Him. I want to read from you from 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 11. I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. And that's true, isn't it? Every one of you in here is tempted, and when that temptation to like sin against someone is so powerful, it's like a war going on. Where the Spirit's going, don't do this. You're like, but I'm going to do this. It's just like hell inside sometimes, right? We all, we all know that experience. Then he says this, Live such good lives amongst non-Christians that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day He visits us. So the way we live in the non-believing world is to have an effect, effect on the non-Christians. They see your good deeds, even though they accuse you of being a goofball. And through that watching you, they will be transformed. And when God comes back one day in the sun, in His Son, when Jesus comes back, by that point they'll have become Christians. And so they can glorify God on that day when He returns because they became Christians because they watched your behavior. So there's an evangelistic, uh, um, there's an evangelistic call in the way we live. And it can affect other people's lives for the better. Consider one more before we close. Titus 2, 1, 9 and 12. As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Slaves, now this means employee in biblical language. Okay, don't think American slave trade and all that. This is employees must always obey their employers, their masters, and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. The purpose of your employer-employee relationship is to honor your boss and to, and to work with like honesty. And that through those, those actions, you can bring salvation to the workplace. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So even though the pagan world may be hostile to us for the way we live in relationship to Christ, the hope is that one day those same behaviors for which they were criticized become the tool by which they are ultimately led to the Lord.
I want to leave you with this quote. Alexander McLaren, Scottish fellow, didn't choose him because he's Scottish, although that does help. Um, the world takes its notions of God, most of all from the people who say they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than the Bible. They see us, they only hear about Jesus Christ. The vision was this. We are, seek to be an externally focused church to bring the good news to the community in different ways. It starts with just our simple obedience to the Lord. Never mind like marches around the streets and you know like prayer on the streets or whatever or just whatever. It just starts with our simple obedience to the Lord. In every category of life as a love expression to him for laying down his life for us. It starts there. This is important as we seek to win the lost in Okotoks and the surrounding community. So, why does obedience matter? It's how we demonstrate our love for the Lord. It's how we learn greater trust in God. It's how we receive God's blessings. And it's how we can be an effective witness for Him as well. So I want to end with a uh, time of prayer. We're going to do something slightly different. We're not going to get into big groups just yet. I wonder if the Lord is um, speaking to you right now and pulling on your heart. You've come in here with secret sins, things that only God and you know about. I'd like to give this time for us to have a personal time of renewal. Spend time right now in private conversation with God. If this is the first time you've understood the gospel in this way, that nothing you can do can, is, you can do in life has earned his favor. That Christ had to come and die for your sins because you couldn't earn it on your own. Then you can surrender your life to him right now. All you have to do is confess your sin to him and ask him to take control of your life. And you'll be forgiven like that. If some of you in here have been living under cheap grace, You've received Christ a long time ago, but you're walking deliberately against him, and you know it. Don't pray, play Russian roulette with the Lord. Confess those things right now and make your life right with him. I'm going to give you three options here. You can do this privately, just between you and God. Number two, if you, you can find someone that you trust in our church community. Some of you in here might want to confess things and and talk about things, but you want someone to listen, someone to listen to you, please go find that person and do that. You can go downstairs, there's lots of room to do that. We can come up on stage, go behind the curtain, whatever, do it right in the pews, find someone you trust. And third, I'll make myself available right now and after the church service. If you want to give your life to the Lord this morning, you can come talk to me right now, and I'll lead you through that. If you want to confess something and you only trust me, I'm willing to listen. No judgment on you from me. My life is probably a lot worse than yours was at one point. <laughs> I'd never hit play on my DVD on the screen. You'd probably never walk back in these doors if you saw it. So let's go to a time of prayer. Find someone, talk to the Lord or talk to me. 
Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Um, I, I know a lot of times when I'm silent after listening to you know, podcasts or other sermons or other Bible studies, it's just because I've got so much to think about. And I actually have a thousand questions, I just don't know how to formulate them. And only later do I think of them. Lord, I pray for every single person in here. Everyone's on a different journey with you, different place in life. Some are still maybe like Matthew, sitting at the, at the booth, collecting taxes, waiting for your call. Others, Lord, are kind of like Peter, who are proclaiming all these bold things for you and then finding themselves falling and regretting their decisions and their pride. Others, Lord, are just learning and they're like a child just coming to you in a humble way of learning, just a, a very simplistic way. But Lord, you, you are grateful for everyone here in their journey of wherever they're at. And I know that you have a love for everyone here. And I pray that everyone would surrender their lives to you in a deeper way because of your word today. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name.